This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Picture this. It's 1962, and Pope John XXIII convenes the Second Vatican Council. When the conference concludes, one of its most significant outcomes is a new vision for the relationship between the Christian Church and the Jewish religion. The momentous declaration rejects the long-held accusation that the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death and seeks to foster understanding and reconciliation. Cut to... Decades later, Dr. Karma Ben-Yohanan, an Israeli researcher, would be captivated by the impact of this historical event on the Christian world. Her research would grant her one of the world's most prestigious history prizes, the Dan David Prize, for her phenomenal achievements. Dr. Ben-Yohanan's inquisitive mind delved deep into the subject during her doctoral studies at Tel Aviv University. She was puzzled by the idea that In the 20th century, Jews were still a topic of concern in the Christian world. What were the origins of this guilt and the subsequent need for reconciliation? This inquiry led her on an academic journey to dismantle the complex tapestry of Jewish and Christian relationships, relations after the Second Vatican Council. Today, we have the privilege of exploring the intricacies of Dr. Ben-Yohanan's research, discovering how the past informs the present, and understanding the fascinating dynamics between religious communities and our ever-changing world. Her work serves as an inspiration, bridging the gaps of understanding and shedding light on the complexities of interfaith relations. Dr. Karma Ben-Yohanan is a scholar and senior lecturer and researcher at the Department of Comparative Religion at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Her book, Jacob's Younger Brother, was published by Harvard University Press and is available on Amazon, so get yourself a copy. We are delighted to have her on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, and thank you very much for having me. So how far back do we have to go? It's always that question with with uh, guests who are who are here for to talk about history. Do we go back 2,000 years or 3,000 years? Where does it all start? When we Jesus? killed Jesus, yeah. Yeah, good question. I think it starts and starts over again and again in terms of Jewish-Christian relations. It's, um, but, but you can definitely start with uh, the Jews, the first Jews who, uh, who believed in, in, in Jesus, who believed in Jesus Christ, perhaps, and uh, the whole story of the parting of the ways and how the ways between uh, Judaism and what was a specific kind of Judaism, how they parted and how it became Christianity as we know it. And then we're talking about a very long history of hostility, of rivalry. Of course, it's it's more diverse and more complicated than that, but we have a lot of antagonism on both ways with the power relations always tending towards uh, Christianity, or perhaps not always, but certainly since the Christianization of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And then, to make a very long story very short, uh, after the Holocaust, after the Shoah, things change, at least in, uh, in the West, in Western churches, there is really a reconsideration of the Jewish-Christian uh, relationship. So, so we're talking about a new era, 
so to say, some would say an era of reconciliation between Jews and Christians. And this is also the starting point of my book. Okay. But, I mean, w when did rivalry begin? I mean, why, why was there a need for reconciliation? Meaning, like, what? I guess, what is the most major? Because you look at World War II, and it's like the, 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 the Catholic Church wasn't involved necessarily in the Holocaust, and it wasn't involved in, uh, in communism. And so where, what's the biggest, I guess, the biggest um, uh, claim the Jews have against the Christians? Like, what was the biggest atrocity the Christians committed against the Jews? Right. So these are actually very big questions. And these are also the questions that the Christian churches and especially the Catholic Church are asking themselves. What is our relationship with the history of antisemitism? Um, what's at stake now? Should the Christian churches do something in order to amend terms with the Jews? So this is really uh, and also the question where this antagonism starts, whether it's rooted in the New Testament, whether the New Testament is anti-Semitic or anti-Judaic, or rather this is something that is evolving later, perhaps in patristic uh, literature, um, perhaps even later, some would say that the turning point is perhaps the Reformation. We have Catholic thinkers also blaming uh, Protestantism for making this turn from religiously based hostility towards something that is much more similar to antisemitism, whether this is whether Nazism, for example, is a strictly secular phenomenon or perhaps a neo-pagan phenomenon, is it a heresy or rather it's rooted within Christianity because the Nazis were baptized Christians, even if they turned their back on the tradition. So all these questions are opened after the Holocaust. They are gradually opened. And in the Second Vatican Council, there we see, let's say, the authoritative moment where these marginal questions become central for the Catholic Church. And what is interesting, what was interesting for me is that it's actually not just a one sided process where the declaration is rather clear, but that there are still from from then on, there are internal debates within the Christian communities in terms of how to relate to these questions. Um, and, and, and another interesting question is, is, is like you like you formulated it, why? They, it wasn't their fault, right? The Holocaust wasn't their fault, at least not, um, not their immediate fault. There are people to accuse uh, uh, in a much more, in much clearer uh, way. So, and, and this is already part of my, my thesis, is that actually this is part of the way that the church renegotiates or reopens the question about its relation with modernity its relation with human rights that are becoming, after the war, uh, the central paradigm in the West. And it's time for the church also to revisit its relationship with liberalism after a very long uh, time in which it was also in rivalry with this, uh, with this paradigm, with this ideology, with this political uh, theory, or however you define liberalism. So. I, I, my argument is that indeed uh, the relationship between the church and the Jews should be uh, contextualized within greater questions uh, that the church is asking itself, also in terms of how to read scripture, uh, whether it is possible 
to approach scripture through the or by the historical method, the academic method, and somehow marginalize the the Catholic tradition through which usually the church uh, looks at the uh, scripture, ecumenism, so how the church relates, how the Catholic church relates to non-Catholic uh, Christianities, um, considering the fact that actually it is with the Jews that the, the first schism, the first split within the history of Christianity um, took place, or the Jews are also important in this regard. So the Jews are somehow central uh, in many intersections that the church now has to reconsider. It's not only a question of guilt, it's actually much lar larger. It's a question of the relevance of the church within uh, within late modernity, so to say. But isn't it safe to say that like throughout the medieval times, middle ages, and right up until the 18th, 19th, and even 20th century, like, yes, the, the church wasn't involved with the Holocaust or with Nazi Germany, but the roots for anti-Semitism, like anti-Semitism and the Christian faith through those centuries, right, they were intertwined. So, so the, mm, the ambience of Jewish hate, right, in which this Petri dish in which Nazism uh, flourished, right, it, it did, you cannot deny, it derived somehow from the Catholic Church. Exactly. Well, there is now the question of how we define antisemitism, because even the word antisemitism is, is late and we tend to project it back onto previous uh, periods. And this is why it's a bit complicated and some scholars prefer to call it anti-Judaism. But for sure, anti-Judaism is part of the Christian perspective on Jews and Judaism. And we have persecutions, blood libels, we have expulsions. One of the moments that were really crucial for my research um, I tried to, I, I wanted to, to know something about expulsions in the Middle Ages. And I googled something about expulsions of the Jews from Europe. And then I immediately got, <laughs> the, the, you know, anti-Semitism in the 20th century in my face. So uh, Holocaust, pre-Holocaust, all of these, uh, th this was the debate that came out visually. Uh, and, and immediately it makes the connections in one's mind, right? There is a history there, part of, a, of, the, of the Nazi laws. They have already precedents uh, that are much earlier and are related to the church dominance in Western Christian dominance. And Germans were Christians historically, right? It's, uh, yeah, maybe Nazism wasn't officially religious, but the, the German people were religious. Certainly, certainly, absolutely. And also in the uh, during the the Second World War, we have also the church struggle within the German Protestant uh, church. So it's not that it's one voice. They were Christians. There was also anti-Judaism. Sometimes there was Christian anti-Semitism also. But there are other aspects in the Christian tradition. And this is something that we tend sometimes to forget. And this is the fact, for example, that in the Middle Ages, the Jews were the only minority that survived in Western Christendom. And this was also because of the Christian heritage, because there was a place, a special place for the Jews within the history of salvation. This is Augustine, the very important church father, Augustine. And while his rhetoric is very anti-Jewish, um, and in, in this he's in line with other church fathers, he's also giving room um, to the idea that the Jews, since they adhere to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible, and they want to fulfill the laws in the Hebrew Bible, even though they misunderstand the right meaning of the Hebrew Bible, which is actually pointing to Christ, 
they are still important because somehow they validate the Christian truth, the, the Christian truth claim. And therefore, they have room also for actual religious freedom within Christendom. And this, this helps, this really is, to a certain extent, we, we may say without uh, exaggerating, that this is the reason why Jews survived in Ashkenaz, why they survived in, in Europe. So it would also be a bit uh, too superficial to, 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 to kind of sketch a very direct line. Um, between what we know as the epitome of modern antisemitism and what we have in the Christian tradition, which is very complicated in terms of its relation to Jews and Judaism. If I'm not mistaken, I might be all, totally off, but doesn't it go all the way? I mean, because Jesus was a Jew, right? If we if we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> if he even existed. If he even existed. But I think most scholars agree that there was some figure that was not historians though no most historians agree that that jesus existed but so, we, we know no, we don't know too much about him but there is kind of a yeah but but if we go all the way back jesus was a jew and then he he probably by most jews of the time once he became prominent if he ever become but he was considered a heretic because he kind of went a bit too far and then if i remember wasn't it like there was this idea of Jesus's followers that Jews were okay, but then Paul came along and was like, no, it's not enough. You have to renounce Judaism and like become a Christian in order. And, and I mean, like, is, can we say that that's like the beginning of like where it's, it was like, like the, if we're going to talk reform anti-reform, like where the where the you know where where the line was drawn was like no we're not the same we're we're different. Well, today we can't say that anymore, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I don't know. But it's there's a huge uh, turn within scholarship, uh, we, precisely with regards to these questions. So where where are the the ways parting? Of course, I'm a historian of the 20th century, so it's a bit out of my <laughs> of okay. my area. But I will say something about it because it's important and it's related uh, to my research as well. So um, now, of course, there is a consensus and. There was always, uh, except for extreme Nazi theologians, there was a consensus that Jesus was a Jew. The meaning of this fact was, of course, debated. It wasn't very, it didn't have significance in the history of Christian uh, doctrine until after the Holocaust. We may say, of course, the beginnings are always a bit earlier, but that's, that's a safe um, saying, I think. And uh, while Jesus was a Jew, of course, Paul was considered, according to the Jewish uh, to the Jewish consensus, we may say that he was considered the bad guy, right? The one that says that we have to um, that uh, there is a need to obliterate the the law, the halachic law, the Torah, um, and therefore he's the one that is responsible for the beginning of Christianity as a separated religion. Today, there is a huge uh, scholarly turn that is called uh, the new perspective on Paul, Paul within uh, Judaism, that actually reads Paul back into the Jewish context uh, in which he was writing. Um, and there, what, what these... Paul was also Jewish? Absolutely. He was Jewish. He was also a self-acclaimed Pharisee, a self-defined Pharisee. 
And what scholars today, so it starts basically with Christel Stendhal uh, in the 1960s, and today we have uh, representatives of, of, of this stream. So one prominent representative would be Paula Fredrickson. And uh, this line of scholarship, what they teach us is that actually what we thought about Paul is, is much more complicated because his Jewish belongings and commitments are, in fact, there is no, so there is a reading of Paul's epistles that actually don't point to his um, resistance or turning back towards his Judaism. So perhaps he can be read differently. Christel Stendhal, for example, says that the problem starts when we read Paul through Luther's eyes. Yeah, so it's, it's Luther that we, Luther in his fight against the Catholic Church, mm. he applies, uh, he, he sees himself as Paul against the Pharisees. And there he starts this anti-Judaic reading, which is not actually inherent to the sources. So today this changes as well. What's interesting for me as a historian of the 20th century is how this uh, turn within scholarship, which is, of course, totally reasonable, it makes sense, but you see how it is rooted also in what the Christian churches are, for example, are going through, right? It's really seeing the Jews anew, it's, it's both a theological commitment, an ethical commitment, and you see it also reflected within scholarship. So there is kind of a, a nourishment or a mutual nourishment between fields that we usually don't see as related to each other. And there mm. is also this ideological or ethical or moral impetus uh, behind it that we, if the Nazis, uh, uh, the Nazi scholars emphasize that there is a split, that Jew, Jewish, Juda Judaism and Christianity are contradictory, then today's scholarship, which is anti-Nazi anti and anti-antisemitic, would emphasize that actually the right way to read the New Testament is to read it as a collection of Jewish texts. So mm -hmm. to do exactly the opposite mm -hmm. move uh, than what Nazi science or pseudoscience used to do. Eat that, Hitler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but, I, but you mentioned Luther, and, and you mentioned even further back the fact that some people point to the Reformation as as like a like the the turning point from anti-judaism to anti-semitism that surprised me because i didn't realize that protestantism was was like actually closer tied to anti-semitism than catholicism it's a question there's no consensus okay. about it you find many or not many but prominent catholic theologians pointing uh, in that direction for example but what we can say about luther that on the one hand luther really Repronounces uh, some of the regular anti-Judaic medieval stuff, uh, for example, blood libels and 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 things uh, things like that. Um, but his rhetoric is very very strong, uh, hateful, antagonistic. And What's the like craziest thing he said? So he has uh, like what if if he was like <laughs> if there was a New York Post headline. About like Martin Luther. I think he said Reuben sandwich is not that tasty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's the what was that? What would be the headline? Like, what was? Do you, yeah. do you have something like? A yeah. Quote of well, the, the there are a few important works uh, in this regard, but the most famous one is probably on the Jews and their lies, um, uh -huh. and their. It's <laughs> a great start. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So there. What, what is he right in it? Like, yeah. What's... So so there's a, there are a bunch of arguments there, but uh, one of the important things is, is that they are. 
um, they are the their synagogues should be ruined. Uh, there are uh, all kinds of hints that perhaps uh, it, sh it should be even worse than that. And uh, the, it, there, it, there are also slanders against the, tal the Talmud there. And we see, by the way, within Nazism also this the, the Talmudic Jew. That the Talmud is something that cannot be uprooted from uh, from from the Jews, even assimilated Jews that they have nothing to do with the Talmud. They're still, their Talmudic character is still very strongly within them. And what's also uh, interesting is that Luther was actually was also aware of anti-Christian Jewish rhetoric. And we see how anti-Judaism is always nurtured by what they know about Jewish antagonism towards Christianity. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, and Germans, by and large, were Protestant, not Catholic? No, it was it was split. Half half. Yeah, it was. I don't know exactly the percents in okay. in each time period, but yeah, there was also a big Catholic population in Germany uh, also during the Second the Second World, World War, oh, and okay. each in each Christian community had to, had had its own uh, struggles, its own uh, its own way to contend with Nazism, to accept. Uh, and also to uh, to struggle, and you know the pious words. So in the Catholic world, there is still uh, no consensus with regards to the Pope's behavior during World War II. But this this is all not my area. Okay, <laughs> so let's let's get back to 1962, right? So in 1962, by the way, how did you how did you come about this? This declaration of 1962, this decision. Yeah, that's actually an interesting question because in Tel Aviv University, and I think in the Israeli public, when I discovered it, really very few people knew about it. Uh, I think today people know more. Um, but it was actually, I, met, I was planning to write a dissertation on Levinas's uh, reception within Catholic circles. This was very interesting. Um, and I read Levinas, and Levinas simply mentioned the Second Vatican Council, and only then I realized that there, there is something really big. So the, the greatest event in the 20th century, of course, if you don't uh, think about Israel as a religious uh, event, <laughs> Uh, this was uh, probably the Second Vatican Council, and we in Israel didn't know uh, much about it, which was also part of what was so interesting was also to, to explore why didn't I know about it. So what in our culture, in Israel, um, in what we learn in the university, what makes us ignorant about these sort of things that are happening, that are taking place within contemporary Christianity. So this is how it was really by chance. <laughs> Okay, and then, uh, so so explain more about this. Like, what what exactly was said, and what what happened after? How did this affect the course of history? Okay, so uh, it's a very short paragraph, Nostraitate number four. Who uh, initiated this this whole process? So indeed, John uh, John the twenty third, uh, and it was it was he was the one that. Uh, that put it on the agenda of the Second Vatican Council. There were only a few, uh, a few Catholics that uh, pushed towards discussing the, these sort of questions, the question of Jewish-Christian relations, in the Council. And um, but there is also a, a Jewish historian, uh, non-religious Jewish historian by the name of Julie Zak, who was very important in in promoting. Um, this this question also in Protestant and Catholic circles right after the war, and he also had an audience with uh, John the Twenty Third, and so eventually this comes to the agenda of the Second Vatican Council, and it is not clear 
in the beginning in which declaration this question is going to be discussed because again there are uh, Jews are so important in terms of as, as a theological category within Christianity that you can put them in many um, in many declarations for example the declaration on the people of God <laughs> or uh, the declaration on the church's relations uh, or the Catholic Church's relations with uh, other Christian groups which are not Catholic so there were many possibilities and eventually it finds itself um, in the uh, in the declaration on uh, the church's relation to non-christian religions this is the fourth paragraph and probably the most important paragraph and there there is a, it's very delicately uh, phrased the this this part of the declaration and it's not exactly it's not it's not putting very clear solid statements but it attacks or it tackles the prominent a pocket, so to say, or the prominent components of a traditional anti-Jewish Christian approaches to Jews and Judaism. So the most important thing, like you already uh, mentioned in the beginning, uh, is the idea of the day side, the day side charge, that is that the Jews, all of the generations of the Jews are responsible for the crucifixion. And this is very clearly stated in the, uh, in, in Australia 4, that they should not be excused collectively uh, for the crucifixion. Another issue is that though the church is the new people of God, the Jews should not be represented as rejected. So it is not clear how they should be represented. And this is something that evolves later. But it is clear that they should not be uh, presented as if they uh, are uh, rejected or accursed and that this is not the spirit of the gospel. So it, it's very clear in terms of how to read the New Testament and that one should not read the New Testament as pointing to the rejection of the Jews. And of course, this tackles the traditional uh, uh, Christian approach towards Jews and Judaism that today we call supersessionism. That is the idea that the church replaced the Jews as God's chosen people uh, after the Jews are rejecting uh, Christ, so there is. So there's nothing in the gospel or in the like. Does that go against any literal interpretation of the original texts? Well, there's a question: what what is a literal reading? And like, whether... I don't know. I guess it's saying <laughs> the gospel: the Jews are to blame for Jesus's death. Period. N- not exactly. Because in the Quran, you do have like such phrases. Let's talk about the gospels. Okay. <laughs> In the Gospels, we have all sorts of things in the Gospels, and sometimes the Jews are generalized. For example, in the Gospel of John, and there is one one uh, verse in Matthew uh, where uh, where the Jews are um, are asking for the crucifixion and, and are saying, are, "This is called the blood cry." That they are saying, "His blood be on us and on our children." And this was supposed, traditionally uh, read as indicating that they understand that they take the guilt upon themselves um, for eternity. It doesn't say so exactly in the gospel, but this is how it was interpreted. Uh, so the, the isn't there the, also the story that they bring out, the, which I think is mostly agreed that it's not historical, but there's the story that they bring out the the rapist and the murderer and the thief dude. What's his name? Bar or something? Barabba. Barabba. And they're like, you can free him or Jesus. And yeah, all the th- Jews are plenty. like, free the rapist. Yeah, th- <laughs> hey, that's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so there are, pl- <laughs> there are plenty of, uh, 
of stories. The, the interesting thing is that if you look at them for, through scholarly eyes, then you can contextualize things differently. Okay. And you can say that actually there are various groups within Judaism and there is no collective guilt. There are debates, internal debates. So in the beginning, for example, the Pharisees were considered as Jesus's most uh, prominent rivals within the New Testament. But today we also see scholars who actually anchor Jesus within, how do you say it, Phariseeanism? Yeah, this is in English because it's again, not my field. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I don't even know how to pronounce this word. But anyway, it's much more complicated. Sorry, and I keep taking us back. Yeah, all the yeah. Way, no, no, understandable. Ago, That's understandable. And it's related, of course. But uh, and, and I have to know something about that. But uh, but indeed, um, from our perspective as 21st century uh, people, um, what is interesting is that everything, what we thought was literal, or you know that it's you you have to really struggle against reading the gospels in one way or today we see paradigmatic shifts in terms of how we how we can approach uh, these texts the problem is however and this is a, an important point is that you really need a professional ability to read scriptures in order to read them against so many centuries of anti-Jewish uh, traditions of reading. So you have to have a biblical scholar by your side um, in order to read differently. And it's quite amazing how the Catholic Church really um, integrates into the way it theologizes Jews and Judaism these sorts of studies and this, this kind of research. Meaning they accept it, they embrace it? They embrace it. They have also Catholic scholars who are engaged in this kind of, mm. uh, of literature. And this is true also for Nostraitata. So the person, Cardinal uh, Augustine Bear, who was responsible for drafting uh, the schema of, of, of Nostraitate was himself a biblical scholar. So mm -hmm. you see how this, and also Julie Zak, the historian that I already mentioned, the Jewish historian. So you see how scholarship, how biblical uh, studies are, and the historical uh, critical method, which uh, Catholicism, the church was r very reluctant for a long time to apply on scriptures or to scripture. Uh, now it becomes a very integral part in the very possibility of reshaping its relations with uh, with Jews and Judaism. But when we stop, so of course this means that, that uh, sources and resources have to be um, available for uh, for the church to, to be able to continue be taking part in this sort of uh, endeavor. And if this will no longer be a priority in terms of, you know, we're far away now from the Holocaust, and if it's not no longer a priority and the church has other things to do, and of course it does have several important things to do, um, then this would mean that very easily all of these anti-Jewish traditions can pop up uh, once again. So this is one of the dangers, so to say, that we're facing, especially when the, you know, the, the historical uh, memory of the Holocaust is very prominent in certain parts of the world. But now these are not necessarily the parts in which the church is very strong. 
And if the church is very strong in places where the Jewish population is very small, and there is not much knowledge of Jewish history and Jewish Christian history, then very easily you won't have those um, professional readers uh, that can assist uh, Catholics in rereading the New Testament without anti-Judaism, and everything can return. But it seems like it's less an, an issue of having those scholars and more having someone who is conducive to hearing their interpretation, right? I mean, is it is it more about who's standing at the helm of the Catholic Church, who who is sitting on the chair of the Pope, and less about, meaning it seems like Pope John the 23rd had this, uh, uh, what would you say, what did you say his name was, Zach, Jacques? Julie Zach. Julie Zach, this historian who he knew somehow, um, right? I mean, is it's less really about like them as a as a as a commodity, but more just like who's willing to listen to them? To them, as in to whom? To to scholars who are interpreting right. Who, right. Yeah. The, the the scripture in this way. Yeah, right. You can say that it's about a cultural atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and and of course, you know, scholarship. For example, now we're talking a lot about postcolonial scholarship. So this would also entail certain biblical readings which can be very validated in terms of uh, its scientific um, contents but it's still very much related to the zeitgeist right it's it's also about what are we interested in now and scholars are also um, are also applying you know what, what what is interesting for them culturally and politically will eventually also find its way into their methods, into their lenses when they study scriptures. And this is true also for the religious, right? So for, for them as well, they would listen, they would be attentive uh, to the uh, to the trends, to the scholars, to the representatives of trajectories that are very important in terms of where the church is going. And at this point in history, that is in, in the 60s, um, so Judaism was very, or the relation with the Jewish people was very much on the agenda. There is a question whether now this is the case and to what extent it is uh, central uh, for them also to, to be in tune and to, to know about the very recent uh, scholarly uh, innovations of biblical scholars, contemporary biblical scholars. But didn't they, um, if, I, if I remember correctly, maybe it's a continuation of the 1962 um, declaration, that a few years ago, also the Catholic Church ap apologized about the Holocaust or something like that. Do I remember correctly? Yeah. So this brings us back to the question that I didn't answer, which is what happens after. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and Thank the whole you, Aitan. <laughs> and the whole book is actually about that, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So thank you for, uh, for bringing this back. So yeah, things are still happening uh, on this front, which is very interesting. The latest... A, let's say official declaration of the Catholic Church came out in 2015. The apology is 1998. So this is, I think this is what you're talking about because there were many sorts of apologies from various uh, <laughs> groups within the Curia and within the church, uh, bishop, uh, bishops, uh, bishop councils declarations in different places of the world. But in 1998, there Maybe was- Maybe I'm confusing with them apologizing for raping children. Maybe I got it. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, old institutions... <laughs> Awkward silence. Old institutions have a lot to apologize yeah, for. Yeah. Unfortunately, they had a long time. So if we take, you know, if we be... if Let's be Catholic theologians for a second, okay. right? Our histories are full of sin <laughs> of all kinds. So, um, and now we can stop behaving like Catholic theologians and go back to our uh, uh, scholarly conversation. So uh, what, what was I saying? Right. So 1998, we have a declaration called We Remember a Reflection on the Shoah. And there the, the church really gets involved or the uh, Council for Religious Relations with the Jews, if to be more precise, gets involved uh, involves itself in the in, in in thinking about the question what was the church's responsibility uh, for the Holocaust, whether we're talking about how Catholics behaved during that time or whether we're talking about the roots, right? What we already uh, mentioned, whether it's a coincidence that the Holocaust uh, occurred precisely in Europe with its long Christian tradition, um, whether it's only a modern phenomenon or rather it has really Christian roots. And so, and, and they formulate a very delicate uh, response to that, a carefully phrased response. There was a lot of criticism about this response as well, but we also should acknowledge the fact that something like this has happened, right? Even this, and, the, and they didn't just, um, you know, take it off their shoulders. It's not, uh, it's not the case. It's a, it's a nuanced uh, declaration. I, anyway, but what happens in 2015 is that, um, the there is another a new declaration that follows up on a statement that John Paul II has made in 1980, and according to this statement, the covenant between the Jews and God was never revoked. Yeah, the covenant that was never revoked by God, which is very interesting because it follows follows up something that already exists in Nostalitata number four, but it's not fully developed there. And this is really the question whether these are still, the Jews are still the chosen people, right? Whether there is a continuity in terms of the election. So this is now on the agenda in a very blatant uh, uh, form, a much more overt form than it was in the 60s. Um, and part of this declaration is also um, a statement according to which there is no institutionalized mission within Jewish communities. So there is no Catholic institutional, institutionalized mission uh, to the Jews. The, the church is not trying to convert mm -hmm. Jews to a Christianity, which was and still is one of the most controversial aspects in, in Jewish-Christian relations. So it actually continues, right? It's controversial because they used to or they because they don't? Did, they, did the Catholic Church try to, I mean... The, yes. the Inquisition, uh, right? Yeah, there were, there, okay, so there are many phases in terms of Jewish conversion and what exactly it means. But the interesting thing is, and this is actually something that is even more uh, pertinent when you think about Protestant communities. So, uh, for example, in Germany, uh, during the war, the, the controversy within the church was um, that those who uh, resisted Nazism uh, were very often... Um, th their argument was very often that baptized church, uh, baptized Jews are Christians for all intents and purposes, right? That they are, you know, Christians just like anybody else. 
while the Nazis, of course, didn't care about baptism. So you're Jewish, whatever, doesn't matter if you're, you know... <laughs> like it's a race, not a... Exactly, yeah. exactly. So here was exactly the argument that assisted Christians in, in stating we weren't racist, we weren't Nazis, we weren't anti-Semitic in the Nazi sense, right? Because we believed in Jewish conversion to Christianity, in the possibility of Jewish conversion. So actually, mission and conversion were good things. They were a sign of being not anti-Semitic, being on the right side of history. And then during the Second Vatican Council, suddenly uh, Christians are starting to discover that from a Jewish perspective, there is some kind of an analogy or even a continuity between physical destruction, hashmada, right, in Hebrew, and conversion, shmad, right? That's, mm. the, that's the Hebrew term because it's a spiritual destruction still uh, destroys um, Judaism, right? It takes J Jews away from their Judaism, so eventually the result is the same. And this is a very hard thing because mission is very central. I think we as Jews, no matter as Israelis or, or, or not, it's very hard for us to understand that mission from a Christian perspective is actually a very good thing to do. What, you know, uh, you're really trying to... Um, to like to convert. To not to convert, but to disseminate the blessings, right? The good news, the gospel. You want everybody to mm -hmm. know about this good news. The, right. This is something you can... This, this is the way to show your love to humankind. You can't save this love from from Jews. So here there is a clash and we still see uh, not only in the, in the Catholic Church but in the whole the entire Christian world is is divided with regards to this question of mission especially mission to the Jews but not only. Um, but Catholicism really went a step uh, forward in terms of uh, the statement of 2015 that there is no institutionalized mission. Yeah but this is still something yeah which bring today in, in Israel for example the Anxiety uh, with regards to Christian mission is very uh, is very very strong until right. this very it's day. It's been in headlines recently, and uh, and also from what I understand, you in one of your areas of expertise is like the the conflicts and the and the tensions between religions, uh, specifically Judaism and Christianity. So what sh what you say basically, it's a two two uh, lane street, right nowadays. Yes, absolutely. So there, there is something a bit paradoxical uh, in the fact we had this, pro right, even if Jew Jews, naturally, when we talk about the power relations between these two communities, then it's not, it's not, a, it's not a surprise that Jews had certain resentments towards, uh, towards Christianity as, a, as, a, as an institution, as a religion. Um, and this is something that was very much suppressed within Jewish communities because of also because of their anxiety, because they had to, um, they had to be, uh, they had to be careful in terms of how to, not to offend Christians, not to touch Christians' sensibilities, and uh, somehow with this process of reconciliation on the one hand, the state of Israel and the fact that there is a Jewish majority here. So this carefulness is a bit less, uh, less in place than it used to be. And we see also the hard stuff within the Jewish tradition are surfacing. And in, in, a, in a sense, it's not surprising, but it can be quite difficult <laughs> to, to observe sometimes. So right. yeah. We saw recently in Jerusalem, uh, Jews who spat on Christians, 
we saw some kind of like provocations i guess we saw uh Haredi religious come to pray i think right next to a big church in in uh, jerusalem and also in haifa, in haifa that's haifa yeah, yeah and uh, so so how do you how do you see it as from your point of view those events yeah so m- maybe haifa is, is a bit different because uh, there we see the berland breslav community yeah. which is very uh, radicalized cult, cult. yeah it's a cult exactly so th- that's a, that's a, it's really annoying and perhaps the context is actually that this antagonism towards christianity is is on the rise but this is still something that is it's a special case <laughs> right that cannot be generalized uh, however um but what we do see is, first of all, this this phenomena, this phenomenon of the spittings, right? That uh, if you happen to wear, a, you know, religious uh, garments uh, of, of of Christian religious, then the there there is a chance that you're going to be spat at, or that there this some a version of an Orthodox Jew will spat near you uh, to express their contempt, right? That's that's something that we now. See, it's actually not that new, uh, but it's getting... uh, Trendy. Yeah, it's getting trendy. And one of the reasons that those, you know, the communities from which the spitting uh, people are are coming from, they are mentioning mission very often. They are mentioning that they are fighting against a Christian mission. And this is really strange because the people that they are spitting at are usually exactly those Christians that would never missionize Jews. Well, those who are um, missionizing, which are often um, evangelical communities and people that you just you don't see that they are Christians, they don't wear these sort of uh, of garments. And and it's it's usually right. It's 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 the Catholics that, that can come from Europe sometimes or or from Western uh, states, but mostly the local communities that get the those spittings and and those expressions of contempt. So these these would be Arab Christians, uh, Armenian communities, and th- th- they they have nothing to do uh, with missions. So there is something very uh, difficult, uh, very difficult in that. Um, and yeah, how you deal with it, with, with, on the one hand, it's, it, we know now that, the, and if we look back also, the Jewish tradition, of course, also like Christianity, it has many trajectories that point in very different, um, in different directions. Uh, but now in this specific constellation, we see also how all of the positive things, religious freedom, Jewish Christian reconciliation, etc., are also paradoxically surfacing those antagonistic parts and we see it also in halachic ruling so my 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 research is not about spittings and and these mm-hmm. sort of uh, you know very physical expressions of resentment um but it is about halachic literature about theological li- literature and there it is very clear that there is um now an attempt of talmidei chachamim of 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 scholars of uh, traditional rabbinic judaism also to rethink those parts in the Jewish tradition that was censored, were censored, or were somehow suppressed because of the uh, the attempt to to come to terms with Christian censorship or with Christian sensibilities or with the Christian rulers, etc. But for like what, for example, like what was censored? <clears throat> Yeah, so that's a whole, yeah, it's a whole, uh, it's a very fascinating topic. But um, 
the Talmud was censored. So places where um, things are written about Gentiles, for example, were turned into sentences about idolaters very specifically mm-hmm. in order not to uh, offend Christian sensibilities. When Maimonides, for example, speaks about Christianity and he says some very harsh things on Jesus, then these things are totally obliterated. It was uh, easy for him because he <laughs> lived in the, right, in the Muslim country? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was easier for him to... Oh, but... Ah, uh, yeah. It was easier. But Egypt was also Christian, no? But what, what's interesting about Maimonides is that he's actually adapting Islamic polemics against Christianity because Muslims, of course, were also... Uh, also had difficulties with certain doctrines within uh, Christianity. And we see how... The Jewish, the Jewish sages that lived in Muslim countries are adopting uh, those sort of the, the Muslim philosophical, um, polemical uh, traditions with regards to Christianity. And later on, these Jewish traditions that are influenced by Islamic traditions are, um, are uh, moving to Europe and serving Jews against Christians when the Christian pressure for conversion is getting stronger as the mm-hmm. Middle Ages are, are, are progressing. In any case, it's a very complicated so how history. how was the censorship done? Like, did they reprint? Are they, uh, they ripped? <laughs> who, the rabbis? No, it's just, it's blackened. It's, who who like, blacked okay, it? Okay, that's a, another good question. Again, not in my uh, field because it's 16th century. But let's say something about that anyway. So we have Christian censors. Uh-huh. that are very often converted Jews. Mm. So they know the Jewish tradition right from within. And they are, and they also know Christian sensibilities. And so they are responsible for, you know, saying which, which parts of these, uh, of these traditions should go. But later on, this is something that is also implemented within the Jewish communities without the need for a Christian to, to tell them mm-hmm. yeah, what's, what's, what's wrong, what's the problem. And then we have a question whether it's always, you know, it's always something that is done only uh, externally while within those traditions are maintained and also the antagonism towards Christianity, which is obliterated. Or rather, it's the Jewish tradition that really changes through this dialogue with Christians. Because again, censorship, and when we think about censorship, censorship, we think only about, right, the, the, the worst part of censorship, that it's uh, intervention, etc. But the fact that rabbinic literature was censored also enabled rabbinic literature to exist, right? It wouldn't have existed if it weren't for the Christian permission under certain circumstances to leave it intact to let it be but today i think i I don't know if this is true historically but today it's pretty common commonly accepted throughout i think halachic literature or rabbinic perspective that christianity is considered ideology uh idolatry idolatry exactly so that's a very important point i think there's a there's an idea that even that if you're if you have the opportunity to pray within a mosque or within a church 
Absolutely. You should pray within the mosque because of Absolutely. the Holy Trinity and the statues right. of Jesus. Yeah, right. And the incarnation, and which the incarnation, is uh, probably yeah. the most uh, difficult part for, yeah. for the halakha. The fact that a human being yeah, exactly. embodies God. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, right. So there is a tradition, uh, a halakhic tradition, that is always much more at ease with Islam than with Christianity. But within the Jewish tradition, there are several trajectories already in the Middle Ages. So Maimonides would be the one that looks at Christianity as full-fledged idolatry, right? Again, very similar to um, the Muslim uh, perspective. While in Ashkenaz, so in Europe, we see different uh, perspectives that are much more lenient. So, of course, halakha is not about theological principles. It's not about, you know, stating what is idolatry and what is monotheism. That's not, that's philosophical abstractions that we can find in Mendelssohn, but it's not what we find in medieval halakha. But we do see all kinds of entanglements, all kinds of, um, you know, pronunciations that, um, that do not relate to Christians the way Halakha used to treat, or the Talmud used to treat idolaters or biblical idolaters. We see that there is something new that is going on there. And of course, the default, because of the Bible and the Talmud, the default was to see everything that is not Jewish as idolatry. But we see in the Middle Ages that there is something new that is evolving. And um, um, sometimes, in, a, in very specific cases, we also see something that is similar to a theological argument that already takes both Christianity and Islam out of this rubric or the category of idolatry and treats them as a, how do I do this in English? Uh, so, umot akdurot bedarkeha. Yes, so the nations that are somehow um, obliged or committed to, to the ways of uh, religion and uh, etiquette. Manners. Yeah, etiquette, exactly. Yeah. So we see, and this evolves, this develops further in the, from the 16th century onwards. We see various halachic figures and, and rabbis that just don't relate to Christians as, as idolaters. Of course, Judaism is diverse, always. It's always diverse. And you always have the more harsh or stringent uh, perspectives as well. It's a matter of proportion, what's at the center and what's in the margins. And what we can say about the 20th century is that this Maimonidian perspective that uh, locates Christianity in the category of idolatry becomes stronger than the other halachic options that are available for, uh, for Jews. So this is what came, came up <laughs> mm. during my research. That, that was very clear that in, 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 in a variety of halachic literature, we see that the tendencies towards Maimonides and the a marginalization of the other halachic options. So there was like a, there was an opening rift in the 20th century between I think Christianity and Judaism that wasn't necessarily as strong before. Well, I don't know. It, perhaps in in when you, when you look at Orthodox Judaism, which rarely knows anything about Nostraitate or the Second Vatican Council, but it does know its own historical memory of a very difficult past with Christianity, then you see the rift is, uh, or, or the, the hard parts of the Jewish tradition are becoming stronger. For if you look at the Christian perspective, it's exactly the other way around, right? There is now really an attempt 
to rethink the Christian relation uh, to Jews and Judaism and to go back to some you know, good symbiosis that uh, perhaps accompanied the first Christians which, who, were, who were Jews. So mm. it's really each party somehow, and this is perhaps the most intriguing part of the, of, of the book as well, that we see both communities, so both the Jewish Orthodox community and the Catholic community, both trying to recover a past that were somehow marginalized. But while the Catholic community will try to recover a symbiotic past or a past of, of affinity, of, of, of closeness between uh, Jews and between Christians, and even a symbiosis to the point of rethinking the church, the, you know, the Jewish church. We, what we see within Orthodox Judaism is exactly the opposite, is to try to recover a Judaism that was not influenced by the Christian pressure, by the pressure of, you know, the exile, the life in the diaspora under Christian rule, with its censorship, with its pressure for conversion. And then we see how they return to the more stringent uh, sources. So there is uh, a bit of a paradox here. Yeah, It's really inspiring to see someone so passionate about uh, the study of, of religion and, and the history of religion. Especially since I don't think I ever thought about this subject more than five minutes in, in my entire <laughs> life, you know. And here's someone devoting he, her entire career. It's, it's it's amazing. That's the thing about about right about university and uh, yeah, people academic research. Uh, yeah, academic research. It's so, such fun to see, really. I don't see how you can, you know, not dedicate thought <laughs> to, to religion in Israel. I mean, it's not... <laughs> I always Jesus, think about man. how they take m- my money. That's what interests me. All right. Um, so thank you so much for, for coming. Can we plug the book real quick? Your book? Let's, yeah, let's plug it again. So Jacob's it's available... Jacob's Younger Brother. Okay. Jacob's Younger Brother. It's available it's on Amazon. Christian Jewish Relations After Vatican II. That's a subtitle. Right. Ah, okay. Jacob's Younger Brother. And then Christian... Christian Christian Jewish relations after Vatican II. Uh, by uh, Dr. Karma Ben Yohanan. Uh, Amazon, other place? Like, is it Harvard still University in, uh, Press? Okay. So that's also on discount. Uh, on their, their website. Is there yeah. an ebook? Okay. I think so. I think, yes. In, on <laughs> Amazon, it's an ebook, too. Okay, yeah, great. I think so, okay, yes. Um, and uh, yeah, people can reach out to you. I saw your emails everywhere. So feel free. Yeah, with pleasure. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for coming. It's been re- really fascinating. Thank you for me too. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. See you on the next one, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.